Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello everyone, Sakuri here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast. Today is going to be a little bit of a fun one, guys. It's uh, just me, and today we are going to be talking about some of the most famous mercenaries in the world. There's a whole series of these different things that I would love to cover with different types of soldiers, battles, sieges, all different kinds of things, because I know that everyone loves it. And today in particular, we are going to be talking about the Lanschnecks. Yes, this is going to be a very fun one. So if anyone is not familiar with what this is, and we're just going to kind of jump right into this, especially since it's just me, and I know exactly what happens when I go off on tangents about all these things. If you go back into the meaning of Landschneck, if you don't know what that is, the origin of it is that it possibly means something along the lines of servant of the land. And when you were talking about a Landschneck, what that is, is it generally is speaking about a German foot soldier, mostly in this case, pikemen which would have been around in the late 15th or going into the mid 16th century, who were mercenaries. That's the gist of it. If you had a Lanschnecht, that was a mercenary. That was a private soldier for hire. And these were guys who had adopted early Renaissance tactics using massed pikemen formations that had been influenced pretty heavily by Swiss mercenaries. And these Lanschnecht soldiers were not only formidable, but they were simultaneously some of the most effective infantrymen in Europe during this time period. Furthermore, and quite interestingly, uh, a part of their power, a lot of their fame, it came from the fact that these guys would dress um, very pr pr provocatively. I don't even know how else I would describe that. Like, if you look at these guys, they, they, they would dress in all these big, colored, poofy hats, poofy pants. They would have massive cod pieces, which, yeah, we're going to talk about that. If you don't know what that is, that is a guard on your crotch, which is just I don't even know how else I'm supposed to describe this thing. It is literally an armor piece that goes on your crotch, which I mean, good for you in battle. Having one of these things, it's um probably going to be necessary when people are jabbing very pointy sticks towards you. But I digress. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We need to go back into the history of Lanschnecks in order to kind of explain what it is that I am talking about. And in order to understand the origins of Lanschnecks, we need to first go back through the history of their predecessor and the people who would later become one of their key rivals on the battlefield. The armies of the Helvetic Confederation, which was essentially just a coalition of different cantons and city-states that would make up the union that would become Switzerland. So you see, when we're talking about these guys, right, these militiamen of the Alps, these were soldiers that were very adept at skirmishing. They were well-trained. They were good at using pikes, at swords, at maintaining cohesive formations. 
and they were good, again, at what they did due to more than likely constant small-scale frequent border conflicts where they had to be drafted up and come together really quickly, like a modern-day version of the Greek city-states, which fought in phalanx, and this was a pike phalanx, if you will. That's probably one of the closest ways to describe this among anything. But beyond being talented when it came to military skill, these were young men who were very adventurous. They, they were go-getters. They were daredevils. They were, they were ones who were willing to go and take a lot of risks. So much so that these kinds of impressionable men would go and form different bands that would pretty much be the equivalent of gangs, but with a kind of effective command structure and proper tactics. And the city-states would use and employ all these different local, more famous noblemen who would lead and command these units of Swiss militias, which provided a very efficient team, not even team, what's the right word that I would use here? It, it, it was something that allowed them to easily muster armies and put it together in order to defend against any enemies that could potentially be invading them. So in essence, the effectiveness of these Confederate armies not only stemmed from their inclination towards drilling and martial skill, but also motivation because they were fighting alongside their friends, their neighbors, their family members, the people that they would want to have next to them to help defend their homes. So during a time of war, all of these different bands would be able to easily be grouped together. They would join up to make larger forces, which would then be streamlined into dedicated divisions and battlefield roles. And all of this worked perfectly with the Swiss Canton system, and these Confederate armies were able to score massive victories against far bigger and better equipped opponents and empires, like the Burgundians and the Austrians and others, at least for a time in the 15th century before they were gradually supplanted. Which, that actually brings us to the background history of all this that would bring the Landschnecks into the light. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So a rather interesting political development that occurred in the late 15th century allowed the Holy Roman Empire to gain control of Burgundy, which had lost its own ruler back in the late 1400s, like around 1477. And what this did is it brought the domains of the empire, as it was, much closer into contact with the Helvetic Confederation and also France. And what ended up happening here is that Maximilian I, as one of his crucial acts as commander, as a leader and as emperor, was to defeat an encroaching French force of knights and men-at-arms using an army of mostly pikemen. This was something that had been inspired by constant exposure to it with the Swiss, and this is something that the Holy Roman Empire, the HRE, would gradually start to adopt among all of its different lords. It needed a 
fast, a well-equipped, and effective force on pretty much all sides. Because think about it for this moment. The Holy Roman Empire, the HRE, they were beset on their eastern flanks by the Ottoman Turks. They were uh, on the western flanks by France. Every single side to them, from all sides, they seemed to have enemies. So as a solution, the realm needed a readily available troop who was always going to be motivated and trained, at least to a degree, and be able to be raised quickly to fight. Now, fortunately for the empire, the southern German states at this time had a very high population density with a large supply of young men who were going to be more eager for military action and booty, which if Gabby was here right now, she would be laughing at me saying that. Moreover, the lingering border clashes all over had already attracted droves of different mercenary bands from regions all along the Rhine. Alsace, the Helvetic Confederation, even Scotland. There was all different kinds of groups that were coming into the HRE at this time in order to capitalize on things and make some money. So Maximilian, on ascending the throne in 1486 AD, he started to recruit Landsex or Landsneck soldiers from all these different mercenary pools and German communities. And by 1488, many of the Landsneck were officially trained, and one unit, known as the Black Guard, was possibly one of the most elite among these foot soldiers. By early 1490, the Landsknecht were starting to prove their worth in battles all over the countryside. I'm not even going to say the term country, because again, we're talking about the HRE, which had a lot of decentralized forces within it, but all over the, quote, empire, there were Landsknecht forces that were seen winning encounters against the Hungarians, against Bohemia, against all these different forces. Which then brings us to a bit of a question here that we have to look at. What exactly were the Landsknecht? How did they organize themselves? How did you become a Landsknecht? What, what happened with them? Well, if we are looking at their recruitment and what happened to get Landsknechts in the first place, then this was pretty much a mirror image of the recruitment that you would see of Swiss militias. The Landsknecht soldiers would be uh, enticed or offered or brought into the ranks by individuals who typically had more influence or power or money. Money was very important in this case. Uh, some of these men would be known as the Obrist, which was like a colonel. And these were essentially military veterans who also simultaneously would fill payroll duties, uh, recruiter duties. They were a person who would bridge the gap between a commanding officer and a paymaster and bring people into the fold. As was very often in the case, uh, the greater nobles and even the emperor and kings and all these other people, they had a tendency to be very short of cash, especially during times of war. And in these chaotic moments, the Obrist was the guy who would step up and raise and maintain a fighting unit of Landsknecht on their own dime, either from their own personal wealth that they would raise in bringing these guys up, though more often than not, this would be something that would be raised via loans, like bank loans, from the colonel's own pockets. Now, you're going to look at this and you're going to go, okay, so we have a bunch of mercenaries who are being raised up on loans in order to fight wars that you don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. And yes, of course, this, this is going to seem like a really risky thing in terms of money. And over time, your brisk pay or commission would 
have some issues, potentially, especially the longer that a conflict draws out without any kind of resolution. But typically speaking, an obrist, if they were smart about it, could make a stupid amount of money. In terms of numbers, a regular Lanschnecht was typically paid around four guilders a month, while if you had a high-ranking obrist, the figure could be 150 times that value. We're talking about 600 guilders a month, which is a lot. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Consequently, the importance of the obrist was uh, reflected in their very autonomous structure. I mean, these were mercenaries. However it is that they raised their regiment, however it is that they trained them, had them equipped, etc., whether or not that changed costs or whatnot, they were the ones who would determine how many numbers they would have, how many officers that they would employ, how many of whatever soldier, and depending on their pay structure, they would have. So their investment into their troop would, to a degree, help manage and further delay issues in any kind of logistics and manpower problems that imperial forces would have during this time because the obrist was footing a lot of the bill. These regiments could then be further divided down into companies that would be headed by captains, and then they would have command structures that would be aided by groups of officers, and so on and so forth. Whatever that structure is, the obrist was the person who would help to determine that. And they were the ones who then determined payment and also what soldiers would be getting in. Which, on that note, we would then have to talk about what were the soldiers that would eventually become a Lanschnecht. What, where I say the soldiers. They weren't soldiers yet. Technically, the people. So if we're going back in time and looking at this, the Burgundian army that had first been defeated by the Helvetic Confederation, they were a very well-equipped army. They were a well-trained army. They were a strong army. But despite their better qualities, they were outmaneuvered by Swiss militias. And because of their cohesiveness, because of their morale, because of their motivation, they were easily able to beat back the Burgundians. So the Lanschnecht get modeled after the Swiss. And this is reflected a lot in their background. These weren't just nobles. These weren't just peasants that were levied together and shoved onto the battlefield. It was something of an in-between. These were young men who would join ranks of well-drilled pikemen and foot soldiers, and they would primarily be composed of middle-class apprentices and people who were perhaps second- or third-born sons of noble families. You see, what you had from here are people who otherwise would have been in guilds or following a trade 
that perhaps because of strict trade laws and guild laws, they weren't able to actually open up a store on their own. Thus, there wasn't nearly as much financial incentive for them to do anything. And in the case of the nobles, if you were, you know, one of the younger sons within a family, that meant that in the end, even if your family was pretty wealthy, you wouldn't really get much of a chance at any kind of inheritance. So these guys would be enticed by the opportunity of pay and potential plunder, and all of them would rally under the banner of being a lunch now. Really, when you're looking at this, these were the ones as well who would actually be able to afford to do so, because usually the poorer folk would end up not being able to make it as a Landsknecht. You wouldn't be able to join one of these mercenary troops because they had a degree of upfront cost that you had to pay. Initially, the typical cost for equipment that you would have to pay as a Landsknecht was something along the lines of 14 guilders or so. Uh, this would cover the cost of your arms, of your uh, armor, of your supplies, of these varying things that you would need as a soldier. Now, you were going to get paid, which, again, was typically the rate of around four guilders. And that was usually higher than the income of what you would make as a stonemason or a laborer or something else in the city, at least in the beginning. So for the guys who had the initial capital that could make the investment, you would make back your money after around three or four months, typically. Now, that at that point is going to come down to your individual skill and whatnot, but you still need your upfront costs to be able to get in. If you're on the poorer side, you're not going to be able to do that. So, as we've talked about, the ranks of the Lenschnecht were mostly formed by relatively well-off individuals as opposed to the poorer sections of society. But just because you had the economic means to join a Lenschnecht troop that did not mean that you were automatically going to get in one. Oh, no, 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 no. If you were going to be doing this, you also simultaneously had to prove that you were physically fit. You had a degree of understanding for social structures and could uh, bear yourself properly to the recruiting Ulbrist. After all, you didn't want to be embarrassing your employer here, which actually, fun note, little thing about that. Uh, I I'm saying your employer because more than anything else, that is actually pretty accurate. You see, th these guys were mercenaries, right? Employment is the key word. The Lanschnick soldier was an employee of the regiment who would provide them with their letter of appointment. This was a document that would highlight their monthly payment, the length of service that they were supposed to be fulfilling. It would mention the terms of engagement. Their different judicial codes, the articles of war, the names of his obrist and the other commanding officers. It would list everything that they need to know as a soldier and the terms of their employment with the company. Though, again, in this case, we're talking a company of soldiers, not a actual company, but it kind of does follow the same line of things since they would have, you know, their their offer letters, so to speak, if you want to use modern terms to think about it. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. 
And I'm Katie, and we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Interestingly enough, that uh, in, the, in that letter, like the articles of war that would be laid out would have guidelines pertaining to what they were supposed to do, like their conduct, what they were supposed to emit, not emit. That's not the right word. What is the right word in this case? Essentially, the guidelines that they should be following. Like, as an example, they were supposed to protect women, children, old people, church properties, etc. Uh, also, they were expected to pay for the goods that they were going to take in friendly territories. They were expected to do this. But there were many, many different situations in which that just did not work. Like, <laughs> we, we've talked about uh, before with uh, different cases of sieges. And I believe I mentioned that time that uh, in, it was 1527 that Rome got sacked. Yeah, yeah. All the church properties in there were were burned and looted, though, to be fair, that was done by Protestant Lutheran Lanschnecks versus actually being done by Catholics. So they weren't following their religion, so to speak, but uh, they were still perfectly willing to burn down church property at that time to get their pay. It's uh doesn't really work out so well for others, though. And in regards to their soldierly discipline. The Landschnecht were supposed to plunder, but they were only supposed to plunder when they were told to do so, which, again, they wouldn't necessarily always do, but that's what they were supposed to do, mind you, and also limit their gambling and alcohol consumption to manageable levels, whatever that means. Of course, you're not going to be wanting to get drunk on watch or anything like that, but it's going to vary from troop to troop, and uh, you didn't want to embarrass yourself in front of the other mercenaries. Furthermore, and perhaps most important for any soldier, you were not allowed to run away to desert your troop on the battlefield on pain of execution, even if your payment was delayed. So if what would happen is that you had a, a siege or something, and a battle was about to occur, and you had not been paid, in a set amount of time. It was not following the set path that you were supposed to. Not the path, the, um, the structure. It wasn't following that set payment structure that you'd been promised. If you deserted, you were going to be executed. But many of the troops also had stipulations that if you did it past a certain amount of time, like if it was after two or three weeks, well, at that point in time, they were significantly less uh, restrictive. Because it's not just one or two people that are going to be deserting. It's a lot more. A lot of them are going to be gone. And then you're going to lose some really big and important fighters who are going to be helping to hold the front line of the battlefield. And speaking of holding the front line of the battlefield, they need arms and armor to be able to do that. They need to be able to fight. So if we go and look at the Lansnecht armor and their equipment and what it is that they were doing, we're talking about soldiers that they were mostly pikemen, and the pikemen would go in with rather light armor. We're talking something that was simple breastplates uh, with thigh guards, 
they would have steel skull caps, which would allow them to focus most of their strength on handling these very large weapons that were typically 14 to 18 feet in length. These pikes that were usually made of ash staves with steel heads. But if you had a more experienced Lanschnecht, this could be someone who is fulfilling a different kind of role. Like, as an example, a Doppelsoldner, literally a double pay man, who was paid double the standard wage and would make up the core of the formation, who would also be more heavily armed and armored with the Zweihander, which, again, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, as I am with many things in this episode, I'm sure. Two-handed swords, pole axes, long swords, halberds, they would be the ones who would be on the front line And when the fighting is going to connect in melee, they were the ones who were going to be in the thick of it, trying to disrupt the enemy formation. They could have all different kinds of varied weapons uh, throughout the formation uh, that would be accompanied by sidearms. You had the Katzbalger, which is the cat skinner. And this was the famous thing that the Landschnecht was more recognized with. It would have an iconic S-shaped quillion. Uh, Some would have crossbows. And later on, they would have arquebuses as guns became more and more common. This is the general equipment of what you would see with a Lanschnecht formation. Oh, actually, on that note, I I talked about the Kotzbollinger before. This is an interesting little thing that I had to go and look up because when I was doing the research for this podcast to be able to talk about this, I came across this name of something that I before had not recognized. So I had to look it up and why this was the iconic sword associated with Lanschnecks. So the Katzbalger, and this is according to Wikipedia, is a sidearm that was often used by these different pikemen, crossbowmen, and arquebusiers if the enemy would get too close for them to really properly be able to use their pikes. So this was a sword that was mostly a cutting sword with rounded tips that wasn't really good for thrusting. It was more of a slashing, broad blade. but Along with other sword varieties, there would be all different kinds of variants that, of course, exist. The thing that really separates these from others is the specific Kotzbalger-style hilts. The question as to why this S-shaped hilt thing is so unique and why it's called a cat skinner, as again, that is the translation, is that when you look at terminology, there are several different explanations as to why Katzbalger has the name that it is. Uh, One of these comes from the fact that there was a custom of carrying a sword without a scabbard. It was held only by a cat's skin. German word Katze meaning like cat, while Balg would mean like the skin or fur of an animal. Uh, Another theory that they had is that the word would derive from Balgen, like brawling, which would refer to the intense close quarters combat that would be when you look at the Lanschnecks and how they were fighting, something that was almost the equivalent of fights between feral cats. But the most common translation is cat gutter, with, again, an allusion to cat fighting. Which I guess does bring us back to their look, because while the Katzbalger swords were symbolic items of the Lanschnecks regiments, in terms of visual flair, the thing that really separated them, where you, even though you could look and go, okay, well, this weapon might be associated with the Lanschnecks, When you looked at a Lanschnecht, you weren't looking necessarily at their sword. You were looking at their absolute garish sense of fashion, the thing that would really stand out when you're looking at military things. 
No drab colors, no no browns, no plainness, no camouflage. No, 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 no. These guys would have massive, colorful attires, things that were gaudy, flamboyant caps. They were, they were ones that would have these huge feathers sticking out of them and, and big poofy pants and cod pieces while being extremely aggressive. It's, it's really interesting because when you, when you look at this, you don't think, okay, these guys are suited for military things. Of course, yeah, this is the military. No, they look like, um, they look like guys that are playing jesters at Ren Fairs, but ready to break your head open with a, with a sword. They, again, we're talking slashed doublets, uh, shirts with all different kinds of hues and puffed sleeves, uh, vibrant hoses, sometimes with exposed knees because they had to show that off, and prominent cod pieces. They would put these cod pieces that would give the impression that they have something significantly larger there in their pants area than they otherwise would. The entire purpose of this and why they would do this is that the purpose was to shock people. It was to give this massive, flamboyant visual representation of what they were doing, of striking things visually and making sure that every person would immediately be able to identify them as the famous Lanschnecks. Like, it's the equivalent of, and I, I've, I've said this before, if you wanted to compare them to anything, these are essentially what, it, what happens with modern fashion, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to, like, Gucci or any of the other brands where the clothes don't necessarily look good. It's not about looking good. It's not about being comfortable. It's about making a fashion statement. It's about presenting something wild, which that is exactly what the Lanschnecht were. They were wild. They were crazy. They were strong. They were soldiers, which I think that means that we have to then talk about how exactly it is that these guys fought because these were the famous Langschnecht mercenaries. So if we're talking about the Langschnecht in terms of general roles, the, the purpose of the Langschnecht is that, again, they were composed mostly of pikemen, and thus the standard battle formation that they would use would be blocks of massed pikemen, much like their Swiss predecessors. But at the same time, unlike the Swiss, the Langschnecht were not just entirely dependent on the melee ability of pikemen and that more static formation, even if they were more aggressively moving forward. The Lanschnecht used more mixed units. They held their pike at shoulder height at a lower angle so that they can move and not, not, what is even the proper term? They would try to be more flexible in their formations to be able to counter things in multiple directions and be able to move easily. To that end, you would have these big blocks of Lanschnecht pikemen that would be accompanied or flanked by rows of halberdiers, uh, by swordsmen, by arquebusiers, the gunmen who would replace earlier crossbowmen. And with these mixed formations, which were the equivalent of what you would have had uh, with earlier hedgehog patterns, these would be able to move and adapt and fight in any aspect on the battlefield, whether offensively, defensively, whatever it is that you needed. And as time would develop, they would gain more and more arquebusiers, which would just add more firepower. In essence, this solved the issues that people had seen before of more inflexible maneuver of massed pikemen just deciding what you were going to be doing in battles. 
whether just, you know, advancing to push or holding and bracing your pike out and letting the enemy move into you. Foot soldiers were very easy targets for enemy artillery. And so if you had Lanschnecks that could move with a more flexible formation, this is something that could counter a little bit of artillery, at least to a better degree. Consequently, of course, there were uh, occasions where Spanish cannons would focus on enemy Swiss halberdiers, while the Imperial Lanschneck would then be used to mop up the remnants of their tattered foe. Because when these static pike formations would get crushed in blocks, the Lanschnecht were able to move in and then just take out the enemy. This happened in things like uh, the Battle of Pavia in 1525, where the Lanschnecht were able to go and attack offensively, advancing into enemy positions in spite of suffering significant casualties because they could move in with such fierceness, with ferocity and flexibility. And of course, at the same time, talking about this, they could be fairly disciplined. By virtue of the fact that they were uh, pretty independent, again, mercenaries, so this is something that happens, the Lanschnecht didn't oftentimes fall under the jurisdiction of civil laws. The Lanschnecht were subject to particular sets of military guidelines and laws that would underline the discipline in their camps and on the battlefield. And in theory, these military laws and courts would be seen as a kind of extension of the collective will of the Lanschnecht Regiment. It was something that was almost democratic. It's kind of weird, actually. They would have courtrooms where there would be benches that would be set up in the open air, and these would be attended by the Lanschnecht themselves in order of their ranks. And much like our modern times, there would be a prosecutor and the defendant was entitled to counselors. One of the most interesting examples of this, of this self-justice, of this self-discipline that they would impose upon themselves is a type of punishment known as the Pike Court. And this is devious. This is, this is awful. There would be a judgment that would be made by open voting within the regiment. Usually, this was something that was reserved for only serious charges, like if you were... Uh, if you had done something to horribly shame the regiment, I, I don't even know what that would constitute. Whether you, uh, you, you embarrassed yourself publicly and were calling out things about the regiment in public uh, to other nobility that could damage their reputation, or if you fled from battle or something like that. If you did so, the outcome for the defendant was either you were going to be acquitted from it or death. There wasn't any in between. You were either going to be let go or you were going to die. And thus the entire process of voting and carrying out the sentence would be completed in a day, and the voting from the soldiers would then be made on the basis of three separate recommendations that each had different groups within the Landschnecht who had studied the entire case. If the defendant was found guilty of whatever serious charge he faced, then he was ordered to run between two formed lines of Landschnecht while asking for forgiveness. After doing so, he would reach the provost at the end. The provost would symbolically strike him three times on the right shoulder, and then he would have to run again back between the lines that he had just gone through with the sound of drums and fifes and other music. As this happened, his comrades would levy out their pikes and proceed to execute him as they ran past him. Uh, they, they would stab repeatedly in, cutting him to pieces. 
the kind of skill and discipline that this would force upon individual soldiers would be extremely valuable. They knew what was going to come. They, they weren't just going to be hung by some noble that was overseeing them with their own set of rules. This was the rules of the regiment. This is what each person had to follow. And if he died, it was going to be at the hands of either the enemy or his own men, depending on actions. So he was going to choose how he was going to die. This skill was going to be needed. The discipline was going to be needed, especially when they were going up against the Swiss. Because it should be noted that when the Lanschnecht regiments were still in the process of being formed as a kind of answer to uh, the different conventional armies that you were seeing in the late 15th century, the most sought-after mercenary units at this time in Western Europe were the Swiss pikemen. And they would proudly call themselves like the Confederates, not the Confederates that we're thinking of. That was just the name of what they would use. And in fact, as we talked about earlier, a lot of these early Lanschnecht units were trained in the Helvetic style. They had instructors that were Helvetic veterans. And while few of these regiments ever had members from the Swiss cantons, they oftentimes were trained with the same kind of knowledge that would create those regiments in the first place. And this would create a really serious rivalry between these different soldiers that would inevitably at different points turn into armed conflict within the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, you saw this in the Swabian War with the Helvetic Confederation in 1499. Uh, this was an intense fight where after a series of battles, especially when they were pitted against each other, where quarter was not going to be given, it wasn't going to be asked for, it wasn't going to be ever needed, it was just going to result in brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat and destruction, which actually it is something that ended up giving it a, a nickname something known as the Bad Wars, which I'm just going to say that is, that is not a pleasant thought to think about. There would be all these different conflicts that would have uh, psychological warfare, propaganda, each side insulting each other, using slurs against each other, distributing leaflets against each other. They hated each other, and they would damn well let everyone know exactly what it is that they thought. In fact, the Lanschnecht had a derogatory term for the Swiss. They would use things like uh, the phrase Milkschuffer, like milk boozer. And they would use a lot of things that specifically stuck around cows. Like, I think it would be like Chuschweiser, like cow Swiss, which interestingly enough, that whole thing regarding cows would stick when it came to the Helvetic Confederacy, because later on it would become the like Schweizer land, which again, I'm mispronouncing i'm sure but land of cowherds is the name it's switzerland it's it's the precursor to what is today switzerland denoting the lands of the helvetic confederacy it's really interesting when you think about that actually but of course that all being said things don't last forever unfortunately the very nature of the lanschnecht soldiers that being uh, pertaining to their mercenary status and the fact that they were always readily available, they could be drafted up pretty much anywhere by anyone whenever needed, was also one of their biggest weaknesses. Because by the late 16th century, a lot of those areas around Germany that continued to go through periods of population booms would just mean that there were more and more and more people that could fill up the ranks of 
mercenaries. And at the time, as this would happen over time, there would be inflation and all kinds of issues where you think, okay, well, there are more people trying to become Banschnecks, but then simultaneously, there is the money is worth less. And because so many people are wanting to join, they can keep prices low on the soldiers. Because the Lanschnecht pay remained consistent around four guilders, this would over time erode the kind of political or economic eliteness of the units. As more and more common people would join in, this just meant that there wasn't any power behind them anymore. It would erode their sustainability. They just weren't valued the same. This would allow different groups like uh, criminals to gain employment within the companies, especially as soldiers became more and more demand and more people joined in. Furthermore, as you'd have different political instability and with people wanting to only fight for money rather than, you know, out of safety for their home and for family, this would lead to mistrust towards mercenaries, which reasonably speaking, that is something historically that is very, very accurate. You, uh, you don't necessarily want to rely on mercenaries. It became so bad that some cities even forbade recruiting any lunch next. They just weren't allowed. Thus, over time, as payments got stifled, they remained low. This ended up seeing large bands of unemployed Landschnecht turn to lawlessness and banditry. And as those soldiers turn to banditry, it just damages their reputation further and causes people to not want to hire them, even at the low wages that they would then have to pay. Finally, when you look at the advancements that would be made in gunpowder technology and artillery, this would further degrade the need for massive blocks of pikemen and foot soldiers. Because sure, the Landschnecht did more than the Swiss pikemen did in terms of their strength because they incorporated elements of gunpowder, but simultaneously, it didn't work out well for them because they were still primarily a melee-focused force. As other forces came in that employed more aspects of ranged weaponry and new tactics were employed like into the last decade of the 16th century with more mobile cavalry like the SARS, there just wasn't a need as much for these large block formations. They stopped being as valuable, and this, over time, would lead to the decline of big block pike formation. Anschnecht were one of the last ones that you would see. But that really is the end of their story. Everyone, that is also the end of today's episode. Thank you, everyone, who has listened and supported us all this time. I really appreciate each and every one of you. I will see you all next time, and I hope that you will continue to support the History of Everything podcast. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel. Goodbye, everyone. This is Dr. E signing out. <laughs>